Hey guys, uh, welcome to the Built Lean Podcast. I'm Mark Perry, the uh, creator of Built Lean, which helps busy men with demanding careers get lean, strong, and functionally fit with exceptional vitality, right? And so today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Kathy Dooley, who is a world-renowned rehabilitative chiropractor with a very deep knowledge of anatomy. In fact, she's an adjunct anatomy professor at two New York City medical schools, and she is many teacher pursuits and several certifications, including active release technique, uh, neurokinetic therapy, and strong first SFG, just to name a few. And she is co-owner of Catalyst Sport in New York City, where she sees patients. And in 2014, I came across Kathy because I wanted to properly rehabilitate my body, and I'd still had some challenges I was working through um, from low back surgery many years prior. And I was preparing for the Strong First Kettlebell Certification. And I came to think of Kathy as kind of my personal body mechanic. And I've worked with a lot of rehabilitative therapists over the years. And I'm telling you, Kathy is world class. And she's a teacher to the teachers. And she practices what she preaches. She is strong and she is fit for sure. (laughs) So with that said, thank you, Kathy, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Wow, that is such a great intro. I'm so honored that you chose me to help you with your health care. And it's always so great to, to see someone excel with the kettlebell like you have and uh, and also use the kettlebell not just for strength but to, in leanness, which, of course, you are the king of, but also to help it you protect your back, which Absolutely. is so great. Absolutely, yeah. and I, I really appreciate that. And so I guess starting off, I, I'd love to hear more about like how did you become interested um, in becoming a rehabilitative chiropractor. Oh, it's so great. Um, I was one of those people that didn't respond very well to traditional chiropractic and I was in chiropractic school and I gravitated to chiropractic school because it did help me solve a really bad neck problem that I had. And I was like, Oh wow, I really want to do that as my job. (laughs) And so I worked for a chiropractor for a while and then she wrote my letter of recommendation to get into school. But when I was there, I was noticing I, it didn't solve problems that I had, like, um, I would get adjusted or massaged and things like that. And my problems kept coming back. And I was introduced to rehabilitative chiropractic by a colleague. It was my first semester in school. I got really lucky. And I noticed that the more stable I got, the less I had to stretch and the more strong I got, the more stable I stayed. And so I was like, wait a minute, is this a whole field of, of rehab? What, what can I, I want to do this. (laughs) And so for very flexible uh, people like myself, we, we don't really respond to chiropractic as well as people that have mobility problems and we have more stability, motor control problems. And that's where our tightness comes from. So no amount of stretching solves it. No amount of adjusting solves it because we don't know how to put ourselves in the right place. And uh, I liken it to like when you put a parking brake on a car, you do it to tighten things up to create safety. And so I wanted to learn more about how to take the parking brakes off for people. And I had to put the lens on myself first. I had to learn how to authentically help myself first before I was going to be any use to anybody else. And so that's where it started. Cool. And so I was hoping to dive into a little bit of the exercise stuff right here. And so, you know, at Catalyst Sport, your utmost principle is never rob trunk stability to gain fitness. Uh And so what does that mean? And why is it the utmost principle? Yeah, um, I... It's a borrowed thought from the amazing Greg Cook, the physical therapist that started um, Selective Functional Movement Assessment and Functional Movement Systems, and we base everything on that at Catalyst. (laughs) So uh, it's basically a way to uh, manage uh, if someone has 
problems through stability motor control. And a lot of times people will try to to rob from their trunk, their lumbar spine area as well, to try to gain mobility in their hips. And the irony is that the thing that controls the hips, knees, feet, is coming from the lower lumbar spine. So if you destabilize that area by creating discogenic changes, by creating pathologies of the lumbar spine, you actually threaten the strategies of the lower extremity. It's sort of like stepping on a gardening hose that's trying to water a garden. Um, you take the foot off the hose and then you can water the garden. And that's what trunk stability is like, being able to create a rigidity around the lumbar spine to prevent its uh, damage so that the nerves that are going from the lumbar spine down to the limbs are, are not impeded upon. And when I started to apply this to myself <laughs> and to all of my patients, it resulted in the treatments lasting longer. I'm sure you could share with the group. You didn't have to see me three times a week for six weeks. I mean, that would have been nice because you're awesome, but it wasn't necessary. I think it's not necessary. Okay. And so you were talking about a couple um, ideas for improving, you know, trunk stability and essentially yes. your spine st stability. I mean, what, what, what would you do or like, how would you do that? Sure. So uh, our lumbar spine, basically below the ribs and above your pelvis, right? The, those vertebrae, they tend towards being bent towards the front, right? There's a natural curve that you've earned in your low back and it's called a lordosis and your uh, not, not so earned curve, if you will, is up between your shoulder blades and then down at your tailbone area. And so those areas, they require the support built from the neck and through the lumbar spine, particularly the lumbar spine. And it creates a coil. If you think about like your mattress doesn't have a, a pole underneath a stick, it, it tends to have coils because that takes more compressive loads and you can create buoyancy and, and disperse any pressure on it like a smart spring in biomechanics, right? And uh, if you are able to support the lumbar spine, by creating what we call neutral spine, which would be a more curved low back and a less curved mid back and uh, tailbone area, then what you do is you create the coils. And the way that we do that is I personally like to use things that I used when I was a kid to do that. Um, and babies create those curves in their necks, create those curves in their backs, right? How do they do that? Well, they do that by um, certain neural developmental progression positions. And Mark, you probably remember I put you through a lot of this. Um, I see it you behind know, you, by the way, on the on the wall. You do <laughs> on the wall. Yes, yes, there it is. So, a little better <laughs> yeah, now, yeah. Sorry. Um, so the the uh, I, I was very much inspired by DNS, dynamic right. neuromuscular sta uh, stabilization techniques, and um, it was all about watching neural development of the child and and how they build what we call it at, at my seminar series. We call it load share where you're able to share loads across the spine, where it doesn't hit one particular spot. So, so many people have lumbar spine problems. So why is that? It's because they're bending only at one spot and they're not able to distribute force well through the spine. So I, I thought, like, what's the best way to be able to distribute force? Watch a kid. They, they know how to distribute force or they're going to face plant because their heads are a fourth of their body weight. So the adult has a different proportion. So we don't want to move like a baby. What we want to do is we want to stabilize like a baby. And when people give me flack about trying to use neurodevelopmental positions in the adult, they don't realize the mistake they're making, that, that 
if you watch a child, they distribute force well. And that's what we're trying to emulate is, is equal force distribution. So I'll put people on their bellies and on their backs and teach them how to maintain their spinal curves and then start to move their limbs. They'll breathe first because breathing helps to protect the lumbar spine. Many peer-reviewed literature studies uh, support that. And then you start to move and ambulate through the arms and legs and you do it on a stable platform so that you're not threatening the lumbar spine. And it turns out that that frees up movement but without sacrificing the stability of the trunk. So I think this is a great segue into breathing. And so I think, you know, when, so when I saw you, it was, it was in March, 2014, I had my assessment and we focused a lot on breathing and it was like yes. my, I was, I was unable to breathe, uh, I guess, like, uh, into my lower back and into the yeah. sides. And yeah. I think, can you talk a little bit more about like, you know, yeah. why breathing is so important? And you actually said, I just want to kind of, uh, just reiterate, like, uh, reiterate for, for everyone here who's listening you know, breathing must be the primary focus of all corrective and performance exercises. I think you said that at some point. So anyways, can you talk a little bit more about like, what is the deal with breathing? Why is it so important? <laughs> it's my favorite topic. Okay. Um, especially since we're in the middle of a respiratory pandemic, right? It's, okay. it's breathing. Breathing's really crucial. What breathing does, what McGill's studies have shown, um, and Stu McGill's is an amazing spinal researcher. What he found was that by the building and release of intra-abdominal pressure. That's what happens when you breathe, right? When you breathe in, you build pressure in your gut. And the diaphragm, the major breathing muscle, drops down when you breathe in. And if you imagine, that decreases the pressure in your thorax around your heart rate, and it allows the, the lungs to fill with air like a vacuum. So just like when you turn on a vacuum, that same thing happens every time you inhale. <laughs> this is a neat, neat way to think about it. So as you increase pressure in your belly, you actually create a pneumatic pressurized system that protects the lumbar spine from moving. Because the truth in life is that if you want to gain mobility, you have to sacrifice stability, right? And so the lower lumbar spine has the most amount of important nerves coming from it, but has the least amount of structural stability. And so we have to stabilize it with things like breath. And your air pressure system, if it's equally shared in load across the trunk, can be very good at helping your low back. What we found in you, even post-surgically, was that you never really had that. You never had the ability to breathe into the sides of the ribs, which is biomechanical breathing, and then to breathe into the posterior lateral side, the, the back edges uh, of the sides of the ribs. And that was preventing you from not only exhibiting your maximum strength, but by stabilizing your back, it was going to free up your hip movement to allow you to do fun things like sprint and without groin pain, swing a kettlebell without back pain. It, it allows you to stabilize the, your center so that you can free up the mobility of the legs. And can you talk a little bit about belly breathing versus chest yeah. breathing? Yeah, like remember that the chest is a, it's, it's a pump handle movement, which basically means the chest comes out in front when you inhale. And that's a passive movement. It requires no muscular activity to push that stuff up. Because if you breathe into the side, the lower sides of your ribs, the, what's happening is the diaphragm drops down and then it creates a negative pressure in the chest. So if you breathe into your chest as an initial type of breath, which we call paradoxical breathing or dysfunctional breathing, what you end up doing is you don't build that diaphragmatic pressure down. You don't build the same intra-abdominal pressure and you start to increase pressures into the lumbar spine. And now you just threw off the spring. <laughs> now you kinked the slinky, if you will. And now you can't distribute force through the limbs as well. And 
Also, you can't exchange oxygen as well. They've shown that chest breathers have more poor oxygenation of the blood than belly breathers. And so, by the way, in terms of chest breathing versus belly breathing, just something I've noticed is like you're kind of, you go into stress mode or kind of fight or flight mode when you're breathing into your chest. But most people, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you can tell me. It seems like most people, at least, uh, you know, assessments I've done, breathing into the chest. It's like, uh, you know, yeah. do a quick, like, okay, just breathe in. It's like, <laughs> like the chest goes up, right? And yes. so I think that we live in a stressful world. I think that we, um, the, the thing that babies have on us in a huge way <laughs> is that they are precognitive. They don't have a choice. They only do it the right way. And as we have this free will and cognition, we can choose to not go back to what we built in the first place. And I have to return to it all the time. Like I'll feel myself like take a chest breath and I'm like, and then you develop that conscious incompetence. You catch yourself doing it poorly. And that's the only real way to build the competence in in the pattern. So it's okay to fail at it, but you have to know that you're failing. And so a lot of my patients don't know they're failing until I teach them how to catch themselves. And then you can reprogram what you've built as a stress response, because you can train your body when it's stressed to breathe better. But if you let it go, you know, run amok, if you will. <laughs> um, you're basically breathing on autopilot. So you'll breathe in the way that you've trained yourself to respond. And some of our trained responses don't work well for us. Right. And so we're also talking, the one thing I also hope you can talk a little bit about is, kind of, is, is mouth versus nasal breathing. And so one thing, like when we were working together, that made a big shift for me and that helped me open up was like, I, I went from kind of chest breathing and kind of lifting up to just opening up my belly and like my abs like musculature was constricted like it wasn't happening and it it took time to open up and eventually i was able to kind of breathe through the nose into the belly and it just like opened up my body over time and i'm kind of curious if you can talk a little bit more about like nasal breathing versus mouth breathing yes um i'm actually giving a lecture on that later tonight (laughs) yeah um so Mouth breathing on the inhale, especially and the exhale, I'm not as strict with as I am on the inhale. And I'll explain why in a second. So when you inhale, you can either inhale through your nasal cavity or inhale through your oral cavity. The nasal cavity actually has a lot of filtering through hairs, which we all find kind of unpleasant when they're growing, but they actually serve a really good purpose of filtration. And then there's mucosa, this um, connective tissue that actually prevents uh, bacterial infiltrate. So it'll catch things uh, as it comes in. It also moistens the air, filters it, um, basically making sure that the air is clean. And then also in your nose, you have these things called nitric oxide receptors. Nitric oxide receptors are a part of the immune response, the inflammatory cascade. Basically, they're vasodilators, bronchodilators. So when you breathe in, you activate these nitric oxide receptors and send a signal to open up the bronchioles, the airway. And you also try to open up your blood vessels and it helps you to slow the blood pressure and helps you to get uh, an even flow of blood to the sites, which is really important for distal extremities because they get the last hit, right? And so you don't have as much of that in your mouth, right? We don't have as much hair. We don't have as much of the mucosa that really can help to stop and filter the air. It's a bigger space. There's less total ability to filtrate. We don't have these conch shells in our mouth, but we have them in our nose that help us make the air turbulent so we can clean it. 
And uh, because of that, um, on the inhale, I want all of my patients, whether they're deadlifting 500 or they're just doing quiet breathing, I want all the inhales to be nasal so they can filter, so they can activate nitric oxide, so they can open up their lungs better, so they go into less stress responsing, so they can, you know, basically get more blood everywhere they need to go. It actually helps to lower blood pressure too. And then if you mouth breathe, a couple of things happen if you inhale on mouth breathing. There's this big muscle in your tongue that actually will constrict your airway if your mouth is open on inhalation. So basically, if you breathe with your mouth open on the inhale, you make your airway smaller. (laughs) That's not good. Whereas nasal breathing opens the airway, mouth breathing narrows the airway. So you're going to get less total air in. They've shown in studies that you actually up to 10% more oxygenation inhaling through the nose rather than inhaling through the mouth. And if you're messing around with your oxygen, I don't know, like the odds are pretty good. You want as much oxygen as possible, uh, particularly when you're training. So a good idea would be to make all your inhales through the nose. Okay. Interesting. Um, And I, and I remember you uh, at least recommending at the time, you know, you could even go for a jog and and breathe through your nose. Is that Mm -hmm. something you still talk about? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm really passionate about it. My rule is all the inhales need to be through the nose, but as far as the exhales go, if it means you're going to lose your belly breathing and you're going to start inhaling and exhaling through the nose and you're going to start to do paradoxical breathing, I would prefer you to exhale through your mouth to build that gut tension. Right. If that's what you know, and, and maybe seals do this, power lifters do this. You'll see them like puff out their cheeks when they exhale and they exhale through their, their mouth so they can create a sphincter and they slow the exhale so they don't pass out. Right. So I think that you can do functional exhalation through the mouth or through the nose. But, um, if the demand is too high, a lot of people can't like lift the 500 and let out pressure through the nose unless they've really trained it. So yes, you can do everything through the nose, but if you can't currently do everything through the nose, at least do it on the inhale. Okay. And so let's, let's talk a little about, um, you know, pain and injury in general. Like, and so, uh, you know, one thing you've talked about regarding kind of chronic pain and certainly most of the people I would say who are listening have had chronic pain, right? Most of us have had it at some point. And, you know, you, you talk about, you must build a new pathway, remodel and rebuild. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So if somebody has pain past one year, They've now entered a brain remodeling at the back of your brain it's called the parietal lobe where it's receiving all this, these pain signals. You actually create what I call a German autobahn, <laughs> like no stops. The speeding is not even matched, right? You, you basically create a pathway to experience pain or nociception without an injurious process necessarily even being present. And this is a hard sell to be able to tell my patients Nothing's actually wrong with you, and it's just a highway you keep going down. And then they're like, how is that possible that it, that pain is not injury? And I'm like, actually, they're completely separate entities. And I tell them, like, some injuries aren't even painful. Like, I have patients that, like, rupture, completely rupture a ligament and feel no pain. They just feel instability. And then I'll have patients that do a grade one sprain of a ligament and feel enormous discomfort because of an inflammatory cascade. So pain and injury are not the same. And if you have pain past a year and it's chronic, you have created a pathway that you have to now remodel, which means you have to dig a dirt highway 
to follow next to the German Autobahn, which takes effort, it takes failure, <laughs> it takes rebuilding, and it takes time. And some people are really impatient with pain because it's so uncomfortable. It's noxious reception, no C-ception. So people will take pain pills or muscle relaxants. And they'll do all kinds of different therapies to try to kill pain. And um, a part of that process has to be remodeling. If you don't remodel the way the brain perceives the discomfort, then you're always just trying to ameliorate pain instead of actually preventing the reception. I'm like... So what are some ways to like, can you give an example of like what remodeling is? Absolutely. So if someone comes to me with a hip pain, right, and they've had chronic hip pain for a year, mm -hmm. they may have a perceived threat of getting in certain positions. Like one position you probably always saw me in was kneeling, right? I've had a hip problem, so I'm always going to kneel because I know it centers my hip and prevents pain, right? It builds a new pathway. But if I sit too long, like in a car, I might feel my pain again because I went down the old highway. And so what I teach people to do is choose new things. If they have an exacerbatory position, like something makes them worse, like sitting, then sitting a different way or um, choosing a, a different uh, neural drive for something. Like if they squat, um, but it's too painful on their back, maybe back squatting isn't right for them. Maybe they need to front squat. And so just those little tiny changes can actually remodel and change the way that they perceive their environment, which can result in less discomfort. Interesting. All right. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about like, you know, some, some kind of practical exercises, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. a, a lot of guys who are listening, um, you know, I, I think we just want to create some like kind of practical, like, okay, this is yeah. something you can take away. And so one thing, one question I had was, uh, you know, what are your, some of your like top few exercises to help someone kind of, I guess, rehabilitate or just get stronger? Absolutely. Oh, I'm happy to send you links to these too. Okay, cool. So, um, so they're all on my YouTube and I'm, it's completely free guys. It's not monetized. <laughs> I want you guys to just enjoy it. Um, one of the most important drills I think for building like a full body stability and strength would always start with breathing, obviously. So it's a drill called supine 90, 90. So you would start okay. on your back with your legs in the air. And of course I'll send you a video of doing that properly. Um, the, uh, then I would roll them over to their elbow and start them through the phases of the getup. And the getup is how we get ourselves out of bed. It's how we actually trained ourselves to walk before we could walk. And it's a full body strategizing of getting off the floor and standing up. And it involves rolling over to an elbow, propping oneself onto an elbow, sweeping a leg underneath them to go into a kneeling position, and then going from kneeling to standing. And then you reverse it, and then you would start adding load to it. And that is one of the best exercises on the planet. Um, the third exercise I would give that's inside of the getup is practicing lunging as much as possible, whether it's for your work, if you're on the computer, or um, if you are just trying to take a knee uh, when you're trying to observe something. I, want, I practice eight or nine hours a day in kneeling. And it's really important because it protects the back, it protects... Um, all of your movement subsystems to help everything hold together nicely. And babies do this at 11 months. It actually is quite challenging. Um, I, people are in love with the squat and they're in love with deadlifting, which I love those things, but I love lunging way more. I think lunging builds full body stability, mobility, and strength better than any exercise on the planet. And it's built in the getup. So you can either practice more getups or you could do lunging separately. Um, the, the last two things I would suggest would be swinging and snatching. 
So swinging a kettlebell, it means for us, like the Russian kettlebell for, for Mark and I would be ending the kettlebell swing where it, it lines up with your chest. And I like that in case somebody has a shoulder problem. Um, the, the thing that's the best in the world is the snatch. But as Mark will tell you, it takes an evolution of understanding how to do that well. Yes. Uh, and if you have a, a thread of that, I have a video I can show you on how you can you know, train yourself to do these things called high pulls, which prepare you for snatching, which I'm sure Mark has endured. Uh, the, um, the swing and the snatch, the reason I like them is they build VO2 max and they build that cardiovascular capacity, but while also building strength. Like a lot of people want to get lean, right? They want to be fit. They want to be healthy. And I think a, a swing or a snatch, whatever they can do appropriately or a mixture of both, they build that cardiovascular capacity. They, they burn body fat. They keep you very lean, but also make you very strong. And there's just not a lot of cardio that also makes you strong at the same time, unless you're doing everything perfectly. And I think running is really challenging to do that way. Elliptical doesn't really build bone density. Um, there's, there's things that are missing. I don't think anything's missing from the swing or the snatch. And if you're really trying to improve your breathing, trying to improve your energy levels, uh, and if you want to incinerate body fat, then the swing and the snatch are two fantastic choices. So those would be my big ones, like starting with a breathing practice, mm -hmm. moving it to the get up from the breathing practice, um, really getting good at lunging for full body power. And you mean like sideways, forward, backwards? Oh yeah, okay. every direction. Right. Okay. <laughs> and turning that into step up, step downs, which okay. are forms of lunging. Yeah. And then uh, a swings or snatch or a combination of both. Okay. That's awesome. And uh, and one of the things that I think also had a huge impact on, on what we worked on was just some of your lifestyle tips. Like you're talking about like kneeling, for example, mm -hmm. I actually saw you half kneeling and working on a computer and I'm just like, Oh yeah. This is interesting. Time. And I used to mm -hmm. sit down and work on a computer and that's kind of how, and then I wonder like why I'm just unable to like <laughs> improve my shoulder mobility and I'm always <laughs> rounded. It's like, it's like you're kind of pulling a rubber band and it just goes back. In place. I love that you said that, Mark, right. because a lot of people don't equate shoulder mobility with their hips, and that's a big mistake, and I'm glad that you didn't make it. Like, when you kneel, what happens with the baby is that at 11 months, they kneel, right? And they're trying to push themselves up, and when they can get 100 degrees of humeral flexion, which is what most people want, they want to be able to reach their arms overhead, once they can do that, they stand up which means that your arm is connected to your hip via these obliques. It's a really important connection. So if you want to build really good shoulder mobility, one of the things I have people do is kneel and teach them how to push themselves up. And you wouldn't believe how hard it is for them. It's so challenging. Interesting. And so regarding, you know, some of the lifestyle stuff for, so for example, I guess we'll start with like a general question and then kind of dive in from there. So like sure. what lifestyle tips would you give to help guys who work on a computer a lot, who feel pretty stiff, like improve mm -hmm. their health and well-being. Uh, one of the best tips, I, I have two big tips. One okay. is kneel as often as possible, right? That's an obvious statement. Um, so working and kneeling, I can send you a video of me coaching through that if you want um, for your community. The next one is get your elbows on something. The, the best thing you can do is remember who you were as a kid when you were pushing away from your mm -hmm. elbows. And so most people, their elbows are hanging off of their desk and they're not on their armrests and they're like hanging in the air. And I think that's a big problem. I want their elbows on something so they can physically push away from their elbows. And that's one of the ways to keep your posture upright. 
um, the baby uses their elbows like crazy, but the adults barely ever do. Like we're taught to keep our elbows off the table, which is an epic mistake. Interesting. <laughs> we should have our elbows on the table all the time. So when I'm in a restaurant, I have my elbows on the table and I push. Oh. Yeah. So break break those etiquette rules, please. Like for your own safety. Interesting. And and any thoughts on standing desk? Because I know you're doing half. And by the way, when you say when we're talking kneeling, we're talking yeah. half kneeling, which is pretty cool. Like I don't I don't think a yes. lot of people who are listening have heard that. So I just oh, wanted yeah. to be I'll curious. Send you a video. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah, send me a send video a and video. I'll share. Because I, I don't want to you know waste the whole time talking about kneeling. Although I could right. talk about kneeling for like. Uh, I'm sure. Hours. I'm sure you could. Um, <laughs> so I'll send you guys the video. Um, the, but. Uh, yeah, like like standing or half kneeling. Knee. Yeah, like standing or yeah, half kneeling. Yeah, kneeling on one knee or kneeling on two knees. Any kind of kneeling I'll take, but I really like it on one knee, like a half kneeling. Okay. Um, and then getting my elbows on something. So those two things together are magical. And any any opinion on standing desk or no? Um, they're not my favorite. Why? Um, the reason why is that standing desk standing is still creating a problem for a lot of people where they'll like shift to one leg shift to the other leg hyperextend their back still slouch i think it solves part of the slouching issue but you still can't get your elbows on something unless you have your elbows on something you're still not supporting the neck so the neck starts looking at the computer and i, I feel like I, I see a lot of people that the standing desk helped maybe with their back but now they're feeling their hip or their knee or their neck and i'm like okay it's like a robbing peter to pay Paul and instead of just paying both Peter and Paul. Um, so I do think the, the kneeling chairs, by the way, are a good substitute for a chair. Um, but I don't think standing's bad. It just wouldn't be my, it's not something I do. Okay. It wouldn't be my first choice. But if you like it, if you get something out of it, by all means do it. You know, so maybe you do a mixture of that. Maybe you do a little bit of standing desk and maybe you do a little bit of tall kneeling and, and maybe you do a little bit of sitting and, and maybe the, the solution is doing a little bit of everything. Okay. And do you have any thoughts on footwear? Because I know that at Catalyst, you know, it's barefoot training and I think you yes. wore Vibrams <laughs> a little bit. So yeah, any, any thoughts on footwear? Yeah, I, I personally can't wear anything like a Vibram five finger because it spreads my great toe away from the second toe too much. Okay. And I have a condition where that already happens too much. So I can't wear those, but I wear Merrill Vapor gloves like everywhere. And mm -hmm. then I wear a very, very flexible boot made by Boggs for the winter. And it's hard to get me out of either of those shoes. The only time I did was when I got married, I wore a heel for like 15 minutes and I was out of it. <laughs> I've had too many problems. So um, for your community, like the, the dress shoes become a challenge, right? Because they have that Huge. little bit of a lift and, and they are also very narrow in the forefoot. So I have a lot of gentlemen come to me with, you know, problems in their feet and ankles and knees because the shoe's not flatter. But luckily for you guys, there's some pretty industrious people out there that have created minimalist dress shoes and you can you know start with those or maybe just training without having shoes on the reason why is because there's 10,000 sensory receptors on the bottom of your foot and if you have a shoe on with a big thick sole like an asic or a sock and nothing against those companies it's just like i can't feel anything and if i want my body to react and it's and my hips knees all of it are wired to my feet then i want to feel my feet and some of my patients are so uncomfortable when they first do this that the, it'll almost talk them out of it but just because they're never barefoot. And then, you know, as you start to build up the stability and density of the foot, uh, you wake up those intrinsic muscles of the foot, which you have over 20 of them on the bottom of your foot. <laughs> then what happens is you start to have better spatial awareness, better cueing into the hips, better stability for your back because the hips help stabilize the back. And then you end up 
not going back, which I won't go back to wearing a heel. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And any, I'm a huge advocate. <laughs> okay. And um, any uh, thoughts on, because I mean, one of the things we even talked about was like a pillow and like, you know, mattress and like, any thoughts on kind of what pillow you, you recommend using or, mm-hmm. or mattress, you know, should it be stiffer? Any, yes. any what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the stiffest um, that you could do, I mean, it should be stiff like a massage table stiff. Like, uh, I really like a stiff mattress. Like we had to design ours. It got really like, we got the stiffest mattress we could buy. And then we had to put a piece of plywood between it and the uh, box spring. And then we had to put like one of the far infrared pads on it to make it stiff enough for me to be okay with it. I don't think they make mattresses stiff enough at all. And I think it causes a lot of back problems. The back wants a hard surface and that takes some getting used to. But when people have acute back injuries, they always talk about laying on the floor, but the bed makes it worse. I think that's really, uh, it's really interesting. I think it's interesting because it's just different from what I think m- many people hear because it's a lot of marketing, <laughs> right? So uh, oh, yes. what, what about the pillow? Any thoughts on like the um, size of the pillow using, using yes. no pillow? No yes, pillow? I have pillow? I'm going to send you a video I made on this too. So okay. you guys will have lots of support videos <laughs> in case you're interesting, interested in this. But um, if you're laying on your side, you need to have support that leaves your nose in line with your breastbone. So if you're on your side, you don't want your head hanging and tilting to either side. Um, if you're on your back, no pillow. Right. And if you're on your belly, you need to have like a body pillow between your arm and your leg so that you, your head doesn't crank. So again, the nose needs to be in line with the, the breastbone. So if you're on your belly, on your side, nose in line with breastbone, any pillow that you have that can create that. And then honestly, some people like Tempur-Pedic. I don't like Tempur-Pedic because when I flip over onto my back, then my head is cranked up. And so it's not for me, but right. really you have to figure this out for yourself and figure out what works for you. I use the sleep gram. I really like that because you can change the pillow to have more density on one end than the other. So it, my pillow is very flat on the left side so that when I lay on my back, there's no support. And then when I roll to my side, it has more pillow so that it neutralizes my neck. And that has helped so much. So the sleep gram has three inserts inside of it. It's pretty cheap. I think it's like 60 bucks and uh, it's magical. <laughs> Interesting. All right. I, yeah. I, I'll look into that. Um, and then regarding, um, and I know, I know we're coming up on, on time here. You probably have patients yeah, okay. you need to see. Yeah. Um, regarding, I think one of the kind of tips you've given in terms of like, okay, what's like a practical tip for someone who's you know sitting down at a computer most of the day? It's like, how does someone like that you know, improve their mobility and just kind of, mm. um, you know, build it into that lifestyle. And I think one thing you mentioned was potentially like put a pull-up bar in your like living room or your office and just hang from it. Like you yep. talk a little bit more about that. Absolutely. I, I, if I could put a pull-up bar in every office <laughs> in all the world, I wish right. that I would just hit the lottery. So I, that's the first thing I would do. I would just send <laughs> out pull-up bars to everyone because um, they're really cheap and they're easy to install. And when you see it, you get that cue to go hang from it. And let's face it, we're primates. We're supposed to be hanging from stuff. And I'm not so sure that our bodies are designed to sit behind a computer all day. So if you can break up that tension by go brachiating, go hang from something, it can really, really help. I've already hung like three times today. It's it's really, really, really helpful. The second thing um, is you know changing your positions often when you're working. Most people stay too fixed at one position. It's usually seated uh, or standing. So um, sit a little, stand a little. Sitting's not bad. It's just not good to do all the time. 
So sit a little, stand a little, kneel a lot, <laughs> or use a kneeling chair where you're being forced to kind of posture up a little bit. But the, you know, I think it was Stu McGill who said the best position is the one you're not in longer than 15 minutes. I really love that. I think you should be more fidgety and start to change your work environment. We fixate our work environment and that benefits no one. Like you should be moving more throughout your day. Why is your desk always in the same place? They ever thought about it? It's just for convenience for who? It's not for your body. Maybe for your mind, I guess. But I don't know. I feel like you should change positions a lot. It improves circulation. The more you stay in one spot, you're impeding circulation of something. So circulation is my major focus in my patients. I want blood moving. I want lymphatics moving. I want their bodies moving. So if I wanted to improve, improve mobility, I'd improve circulation, right? And so just change your position as often as possible. Cool. Well, uh, let's end on that. And so how, how can people learn more about you? How can they find you? Oh, yeah. So I'll send you guys, uh, I'll send Mark uh, some of the videos we talked about. And so that's all on my YouTube. If you guys want to go on YouTube, it's uh, Dr. Dooley Noted, D-R-D-O-O-L-E-Y-N-O-T-E-D. And um, I'm happy to send you a link to that. And I'll give you my personal email. If you have questions, feel free to write. Um, they always say if you want something done, give it to a busy person. So <laughs> I return emails within 24 hours typically. Cool. If I'm delayed, I'll let you know. But I'd love to answer your questions. Uh, I think it's great what you folks are doing, tuning in to Mark's podcast to, to learn more about how to help yourself. I am a huge advocate of doctor meaning teacher, not fix your stuff. Uh, so I've been very proud to be in Mark's uh, healing team to, to help inspire and catalyze him helping himself. And I hope that you guys will do the same. Awesome. Well, listen, uh, Kathy, it was awesome catching up and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Mark. Bye. All right. Bye-bye.